So, Father, thank you for this day, for the privilege it is to sing praises to you, to learn of your words, and to grow in our knowledge and love of the Lord Jesus. And our prayer today is that we would learn of him and grow into his likeness. Fill us by your spirit, because we ask it for Jesus' namesake and for his glory. Amen. Well, the term American dream was first uh, coined in a best-selling book in 1931, titled The Epic of America. But it's the belief that anyone, regardless of age or birthplace, social background, can attain prosperity and success in this, the great land of opportunity and freedom. In short, you can be blessed. This good life, though, what is it, the American dream? If you turn to the self-help books, the psychiatrist's couch, the financial advisor, the home improvements catalog, the real estate agent, or the travel agent's brochure, the picture is always the same. At the heart of this, the good life, is financial security, educational achievement, career promotion, fitness and well-being, personal satisfaction, and hedonistic pleasure. So it's all about the good life that Jesus is teaching us this morning, only, and there's a warning, we're in for something of a massive shock. Because this morning what Jesus is going to do is to turn the good life as we imagine it upside down. This morning we begin a new sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. This is the world's most favorite, most famous, most quoted sermon in history. But it's the least understood and the least applied sermon ever preached. In these 111 verses, Jesus sets out the kingdom manifesto, a radical agenda for each and every disciple, taking us to the very heart of the gospel and the shape of authentic discipleship. In verse 1, in our text, Jesus goes up a hillside as the crowds gather, and he sits, the picture of rabbinic teaching authority. And if you fly to Palestine and you head to the seaside town of Tabagatha, two miles out of that town is a 330-foot hill called the Hill of Beatitudes, where you can stand the precise place where Jesus taught this extraordinary sermon. The significance of what's about to happen and what we're about to learn comes in verse 2 with that odd phrase, he opened his mouth. It's a strange phrase, isn't it? But it's a strong one in the original Greek, used of solemn and grave proclamations, used of powerful revelations like oracles in the Old Testament, seatbelts on everyone. Get ready for takeoff. What is about to happen is that Jesus is about to speak with strength and energy as he projects with earnestness and truth this, the kingdom manifesto, as Jesus sets it out for us. So, just as the American revolutionaries had their declaration of independence, just as Karl Marx then has his communist manifesto, here now is Jesus' kingdom manifesto. Here is the kingdom of God as Jesus the King sets it out for us. And it takes us to our first point, 
with one word, blessed. The Sermon on the Mount opens with the Beatitudes in verses 1 to 12, and that's where we are today. And that word beatitude comes from the Latin word beautus, that means blessed. It's repeated eight times in eight proverb-like statements. The tense here is not future, you will be blessed, but it's present tense, you are blessed in the now. And if we were to do a survey and ask, do you want to be blessed by God now? We'd all say yes. Only the word blessed here is a a Greek word, makarios. It doesn't mean happy, because we're about to discover it involves persecution. The word really implies to be congratulated, uh, to be commended. We might say to be envied. Picture the eighth grader who does well at some sports game, and then we all turn up for the ceremony as he's given the trophy. As we clap with a round of applause, we'd say, well done, congratulations. It's the same response that we'd make to the guy who in his career has done well and he's got promoted, or to the parents with the newborn baby. There's a degree of happiness to it, but it's more than that. We're so happy for you, you are to be congratulated. I guess the Americans don't really have a phrase that captures it, but the Australians do. Uh, They might say, good on ya. Um, The Welsh have a phrase as well. It goes like this, gwyn a beat. Literally, white is their world. These people, the people in the Beatitudes, are to be congratulated, but more than that, these people are to be envied because they've found the good life. But here's the shock of the morning. It is to see that the good life that we have found looks like the cursed life. It looks like the cursed life, but it's really the good life of the kingdom of God. And I want you to look at the text because verse 3 is the heading. Verse 3 is the heading to which verse 11 is the conclusion. And if you look carefully at the text, you'll see that in verse 11, blessed are the poor of spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then you go down to verse 11, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That phrase, the kingdom of heaven, is repeated in verse 3 and in verse 11, and it forms what's called an inclusio, or if you like, a frame. Verse 3 is the heading and verse 11 is the conclusion. And like a picture frame, all of the rest of the verses head into that picture frame. And verse 3, this idea of the poverty of spirit, really is the introduction because it's the main points of which all the other Beatitudes are the explanation. Verse 3, like the head of the river from which all the other verses flow. So we're going to spend some time on that opening phrase, and then we'll come back to the final one later on. Blessed, says Jesus, and here's the shock, because you are poor, blessed is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor of spirits. Now, poverty here is not a reference to material needs, but to spiritual plight. And that phrase, the poor, is a definable category in the Old Testament. 
The original hearers would have thought back to Isaiah chapter 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, says Messiah in the Old Testament, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from the prisoners in darkness. Question, who are the poor of the Old Testaments? Isaiah answers, they are the captives. They are those who are prisoners in darkness. The people is of a people, the picture is of a people in the darkness of judgment from God at sin. And in Isaiah 62, the reason the poor are trembling at God's word is because they are fearful of a judgment they cannot escape. And the reason we can't escape the judgment of God and the reason that we are poor is because the law of God demands of each one of us a perfection we cannot possibly attain. A friend of mine called Rupert um, is chaplain at Eton College in uh, Windsor. And if you don't know Eton College, it is the school, the oldest school in the world, and the place where the rich and the famous are taught. Princes, uh, the daughters and sons of sheikhs, royalty, and dignitaries are taught and prepared for life at this school. Both Prince Harry and Prince William in their day attended. But this is what he says of the school. He said this to me some years ago. He said, I work in the spiritual third world. Because as the rich and the wealthy, as dignitaries from all over the world, send their children to Eton for a $130,000 a year education to be prepared for life, he says of that school, it's the spiritual third world. Because these are children who are success stories on planet Earth, but of course know nothing of the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. This picture is graphic poverty, but I'm prepared to bet none of us really in this building today have any real sense of what Jesus means by this, even if, and I know some of you are from backgrounds that are very poor, still we can't quite grasp this. In the original context in the first century, many peasants lived on the margin of subsistence, but they were further impoverished and driven into debt by harsh annual extractions. They had to take out loans with extraordinary amounts of interests uh, offered by money-lending merchants and absentee landlords. And debtors would then extract back from the tenants the original amount and the interest, which could only be paid if it was a good harvest. But if it was a bad harvest, or if there was a flood or drought or disease or war, they could never pay it back. So there was a foreclosure on the debt as they were placed into servitude as indentured servants, but actually more, more slaves. It drove them into prostitution and slavery for the rest of their lives. And there was no Obamacare, there was no help from the welfare state, there was no socialism, no child tax credits, and no food banks. So they were driven onto the streets, 
They were forced into poverty, both in rural and city locations. If it's hard to grasp what it was like then, well then, what about Victorian London? Poverty was rife there, as the poor depended on credit from shoekeepers and shoe and shopkeepers and landlords to survive to feed their families. But when the creditors lost patience with those in debt, you would be thrown into the debtor's prison. And the most infamous of all the debtors' prisons in Victorian London was the Marshalsea. And some months ago, I was walking past a part of London, and I hadn't realized that this, this was the site of the Marshalsea, which was a form of hell on earth. In 1729, a parliamentary committee of inquiry found that prisoners in the Marshalsea had deliberately starved to death to avoid the fees that were being extorted from them, and that within the prison, many had died of deprivation and brutality at the hands of the jailers. It was a microcosm of the nightmare and horror of life in London if you were poor. And one of the people most scarred by it forever was Charles Dickens, whose father was placed in the Marshall Sea. And he watched the terror and horror of poverty. And actually, he puts it into that book, uh, Little Dorrits. But it's in the book, David Copperfield, where speaking of debt and the horror and terror of his father's experience, he went on to write this. Annual income, 20 pounds. Annual expenditure, 19 and 6. Results, happiness. Annual income, 20 pounds. Annual expenditure, 21 pounds and 6. Results, misery. And this picture, the poor, stands as our plight. We cannot pay back what we owe God. We cannot repay our debts. We cannot obey God's law. We have no spiritual assets, no moral reserves. We are in the reds with God forever. Like inmates in a, in a federal penitentiary, <clears throat> convicted of the most serious offense with no hope, no possibility of remission, we deserve God's judgment. It's the hymn, isn't it? Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. And the poor cry out for mercy. It's the tax collector, isn't it, from a few weeks ago. Oh, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. It's the thief on the cross, minutes away from final judgment. He's got nothing to offer. He's out of time. It's John Newton, too, the serial abuser and slaver. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound of saved a wretch like me. This is the opposite to pharisaical religion. The Pharisee thinks he's rich, that he's got assets to offer God. But the true Christian, the mark of true spirituality is we admit we are bankrupt before God. And in the topsy-turvy topography of the kingdom of God, it is the admission of that bankruptcy that takes us to Jesus' death on the cross at Calvary, where He pays our debt for us, and He gives us His own righteousness for free. And so the poor, 
now are actually blessed. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of God's. And the theirs here is emphatic. It's theirs in a way that it's not anyone else's. Blessed are the poor of spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What now happens is that rather like a necklace <clears throat> with pearls on it, each of these beatitudes follows in a deliberate order, each building on the other. So the question is, how is this, this poverty of spirit expressed? How would you notice it if you saw it? And each of these beatitudes provides the answer. For a second, you'll see it in mourning. Have a look at the text. Jesus says, blessed, verse 4, are those who mourn, they will be comforted. There are many reasons to mourn, bereavement and the tragedy of that, sickness or redundancy, uh, wounded pride or financial loss. But here we're mourning at sin. It's not me-centered but God-centered. This person is grieved at his offense, at his poverty of spirits vis-a-vis God. And the original grammar is really, really strong. This, this morning, isn't a shallow thing um, in the confession in church on a Sunday. This is really deep and intense. Jesus picks the strongest possible word for grief, borrowed from a funeral. This person is heartbroken at his guilt, at his sin, as he sees he has nothing to offer God in and of himself. This man is grieved at the sin within him and at the sin around him in the world. It is a picture of genuine grief and contrition. And I was very struck on, I think it was Wednesday this last week, as one of the elders was praying. By the way, you have some great leadership here at, at, um, at Lydie's, some great elders passionately committed to the welfare of this church and the extension of the gospel. And one of the elders was praying in our prayer meeting because we meet for half an hour before we do business. And as he started praying that there would be righteousness in the land of America and an end to sin, he burst into tears. I haven't seen that for a while. And I thought to myself, there's a man from verse 4. There's the tears as he contemplated with trembling in his voice the horror of a nation living in rebellion against God. It's exactly what Daniel does in chapter 9. I prayed to the Lord my God, and I confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love <clears throat> with those who love him and keep his commandments. Verse 5 of chapter 9, we have sinned and done wrong. We have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands. We've not listened to your servants. We have not obeyed your word. What then is the mark of this person who mourns? And the answer in verse 6, verse uh, 5, is that they will be gentle. Blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. It's not a great translation, I'm afraid. The word there is not gentle, it's actually meek. And that word meek uh, doesn't mean weak. It's a word that combines both power and restraints. Picture the police horse. Power 
yet restrained. Indeed, the word meek was used of war horses in the ancient world, in ancient Greece. They had immense power, but they were restrained under control. The Greeks considered meekness to be a vice. They thought it was a form of civility. But the meek here are accepting of their situation. That's why they're meek. I'm poor of spirits because I have no righteousness. As a result of that, I mourn my sin because there's nothing I can do about my guilt before God. And I'm meek because I'm looking to God to rescue me because I cannot rescue myself. And this pathetic specimen, this, this person, um, poor of spirit, um, mourning sin, uh, unable to do anything about it but trust God, looks so pathetic. If you live like that, you look like a loser. But look what it says, the meek will inherit the earth. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 37 where the meek will inherit the land, but he changes the verse, not the land, but the earth. <clears throat> For if you are poor of spirits, if you are mourning your sin, and if you are looking to God to come to the rescue, when he does come to the rescue, you will inherit the earth because you're part of his family and you will inherit the heavenly estate when Jesus Christ returns on the great day of his vindication to take his trusting people home for glory. So what do we do in the now? Poor of spirit and mourning and meek. <clears throat> it leads to the next one, doesn't it? Hungering, verse 6, and thirsting for righteousness. Only the word righteousness is a Greek word that could equally be translated justice. So we're hungry. We're thirsting for the day when His righteousness will be finally ours in experience and when the justice of God's liberating us will be seen. And again, this word hunger is incredibly strong. It's not I'm a little bit hungry and I need a snack. This is a profound and debilitating and agonizing hunger. It's the kind of hunger a newborn will express in that brain-piercing noise. Do you remember that? That awful noise as if somebody's drilling into your brain. There's no sound like it. Because the newborn is crying out to be fed in a desperation, life-or-death experience. We hunger. We thirst for the day when Jesus will return, when everything will be right forever in the universe. That's why the elder was crying. He wanted that for America. And don't you want that for your heart? The day when everything in your heart is only perfection and true and beautiful and right. But the mark that you're really mourning and hungering is that as we wait for Jesus' righteousness, we grow in a righteousness in our hearts. J.C. Ryle put it like this of formal religion versus the real deal. True holiness does not merely consist of believing or feeling, but of doing and bearing and a practical exhibition of active and passive grace. 
So our tongues, our tempers, our natural passions and inclinations, our conduct as parents and children, masters and servants and husbands and wives, rulers and subjects, our dress, are we dressing appropriately? Our employment of time, how are you using it? Our behavior in business, any fraudulent deals going on at the moment? Our demeanor in sickness, are you bearing up well? And in health, in riches and poverty, everything is brought under this desire to be righteous and godly as I wait for Jesus Christ to return. It leads to the next pearl on the beads, the next pearl on the necklace, verse 7, the merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Each of these leads on to the other. If you're poor of spirits, then, then you will be meek. If you're meek, you will be hungry for righteousness. And if you're hungry for the righteousness that Jesus will give you, if you're hungry for His mercy, we'll be merciful now as this beatitude moves us from our relationship to God to our relationship with others. If I'm poor of spirit and mourning my sin and crying out to God for His righteousness as a gift, and I've received that gift, then I will show that I've received it in the way that I relate to others. If I've received mercy vertically from God, poor of spirit, hungry for righteousness, if I've received mercy vertically, you'll see it in how I relate to you horizontally. But if I don't show mercy horizontally, then the jury must be out on whether or not I've ever received it mercifully. Sometimes one of the most merciless places to be is in a church people who get angry or upset about something, lash out or show real harshness of spirit. I've seen a little bit of that here at Lydie's over the past few months, if I'm honest. And it is something that needs to be addressed and changed. We have no right to strut around the world complaining and arguing and bitter about things that we don't like that have been done in a particular way. If you've received the mercy of God, vertically speaking, that does need to be shown horizontally. Of course, we are entitled to our own opinions and more than able to disagree. That's healthy. But it's the manner and the way in which we do that which will show whether or not Vertically speaking, we've understood mercy. It's the parable of the debtor, isn't it? Forgiven by the master, but he goes around the company, around the world, demanding his way from others. Can I encourage us to work at this virtue? Because it is the mark of the kingdom of God. In 1987, a bomb went off in a part of Northern Ireland called Enniskillen. I'll never forget it. And it hospitalized 63 and killed nine. But in the middle of that blast was a man called Gordon Wilson, a believer. And he was with his daughter. And he held his daughter under the rubble of the blast. And she died saying these words, Daddy, I love you very much. Eventually, the rescuers pulled Gordon and his wife, Mary, out from the rubble. 
And only hours after the blast that had killed his own daughter, he turned to BBC journalists speaking of the IRA, and he said this, quote, I have lost my daughter, and I'm going to miss her forever, but I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. Those words were reported worldwide and were the most memorable of all the troubles. He was ridiculed because of his stand. But as a Christian, he understood that having received God's mercy vertically, he could not but help show it horizontally. And so these merciful people will receive mercy, not because we've earned it, but because as you show mercy, it shows you've received mercy. If you show mercy to the world, it's proof that you have received God's mercy. And if you've received God's mercy at the cross, it's proof that you will receive it on the day when Jesus returns at the end of the age. Let's keep working at this. Mercy. Pure. Blessed are the pure, for they will see God. And in the original, this phrase, pure of heart, has the implication of straightness and honesty of wholeheartedness. There's no mask here, that's the point. This man's faith is not a performance, it's not a sham, it's not an act, it's not just a a Sunday thing. This man is real. He's wholehearted, he's devoted, he's consecrated. He is seeking to love the Lord his God with all his heart and mind and soul and strength. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will see God. They'll be called sons of God. Here the picture is not so much those who seek to live at peace, because sometimes the gospel divides. The peacemaker here is the person borrowed from Isaiah chapter 55 and 52. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings and that preaches peace. It's Isaiah 9 and the great Christmas text. Jesus, the Prince of Peace. It's the angel's announcement. Peace on earth because the peace here is not a feeling. It's not just a relational thing between us. It's the peace deal between God and sinners through the death and shed blood of Christ. What's this peacemaker doing? But he's proclaiming the gospel. He's proclaiming the gospel, which they'll be doing at Judgment House in these next few weeks, and we're looking forward to seeing the gospel go out in evangelism. That's what it's about. And it's the highest privilege on earth to do evangelism. The peacemaker will be called a son of God. The peacemaker, Jesus, is the son of God, and as we are united to Jesus and join with him in the mission of the gospel, like him we are sons in the sense that we will inherit the heavenly estates. And in a family photo, you sometimes see the father and you say, gosh, he really does look like your son. Look at the eyes and the nose and the ears and the hair, it's amazing. You can always spot a family likeness, can't you? So what's the family likeness? It's that we, like Christ, are committed to peace. We ache that the lost might be brought into peace with God before it's too late, that they might be rescued from sin forever. 
Here is the kingdom manifesto. Here is the shape of true, authentic spirituality. It means being poor of spirits as we mourn our sin and hunger for righteousness. It means that we will long to be pure as we proclaim the gospel of peace. This is an amazingly beautiful person. In fact, as you look at these verses, it's Christ, isn't it? Christ is the one who mourns sin in Gethsemane. Christ is the one who hungers for God's righteousness on earth. He's the pure of heart. It's Jesus in the picture. So, how do we imagine the world will respond as we grow into this kind of beauty? And the answer is an incredible shock. Have a look at verses 10 to 12. You'd expect that if we were growing like this in righteousness and truth, that your co-workers and your parents-in-law, that your teammates would love you and welcome you. But the answer is no, verses 10 to 12. Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil falsely against you for my sake. Jesus is saying if you live as good as this and as beautifully as this, don't expect the red carpets. Don't expect the royal treatments. In fact, the opposites. You will be persecuted. Indeed, you may well die for it. Why is that? And it's this, isn't it? As we embody these qualities, we become a walking, talking, living, breathing sermon. It's actually very convicting to have somebody like this around in the office. Because if you live like this, you are a walking, talking, living, breathing picture of the truth of God's kingdom and of Christ's rescue, which is great unless you don't want in on the kingdom of God. No, this person is unpleasant to have around. And so what's going to happen to this person in the team or the office or in the factory? Well, precisely what happened to all the other prophets. Because Daniel was thrown to the lions. Zechariah was slain between the steps of the altar, and John the Baptist lost his head, and Christ ended up on the cross. Now, here's what's ahead. Reviling, that's verbal insults. Uh, persecution, that's physical opposition or torture. And you can look back in church history or around the world to North Korea or Pakistan or go to Iran or China, and this is the experience. Dietrich Bonhoeffer himself, placed in a concentration camp for his faith, said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. And I think we're going to see the cost of discipleship here in the States ratcheting up over these next few years and decades. Lawrence Saunders was a martyr under Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, in the 16th century. And he was taken to the stake in Coventry, a city in the Midlands, and it was extraordinary. As he headed to the flames, as they lit the flames in front of him, his face beamed. And then he said this, he kissed the stake as if it was a friend. And he said, welcome, the cross of Christ. Welcome, everlasting life. 
For he had understood what Jesus says here, rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets that were before you. Can I just say, it is actually impossible to be a real Christian and not persecuted. The Apostle Paul says as much, everybody who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. It's a certs, a banker. It's a promise from God. That's a challenge to those of us who are not being persecuted or who never have, but it's a comfort for those who are being persecuted. Because if you're standing for Christ, you will be persecuted, and if you're persecuted, it shows you're in the lineup with the true prophets. You really are in the kingdom of God, and that means only one thing. You're heading not just for reward, it says great reward. And the reward for Jesus was the resurrection and ascension to glory, and it's the same for us through union with Jesus Christ. Do you want the blessed life, the good life, the American dream? No, not the American dream, but the good life of the kingdom. What does it mean? What does it involve? It's the blessing of God, but the two signs that you have it are a shock, a poverty of spirits in how I relate to God, and a persecution as the world relates to me. Are you poor of spirit vertically as you relate to God? And are you persecuted horizontally as the world relates to you? If that's you, be encouraged. You're blessed, and great is your reward on the great day of Jesus' return. Let's pray together as we sit. A moment of challenge, perhaps, as we ask, is this really me? And a moment of encouragement as we ask God to keep us His in the poverty and persecution of this life. Blessed are the poor of spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is in heaven, and it's great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you.